As Brother Jimmy said, we are glad to have each one of you here this morning for our Sunday morning worship period. If you are visiting with us, we are always happy and honored to have visitors. And please come back and be with us whenever you can. If you're paying any attention at all right now to the national news, you probably know that there's a lot of debate going on about the $6 trillion spending plan that's being proposed for the federal government by the current administration. That plan would greatly increase our national debt. Much, much, much more than what it already is. Today in New York City, there is an unusual clock located about a block away from Times Square. Some of you may have seen it. It's called the National Debt Clock. The National Debt Clock is a billboard size display, electronic display, that is constantly updated nonstop, 24 hours a day, to show the current United States national, total national debt. And every American family share of that debt. And you don't have to go there to New York City to see the information. There are several websites that show the same or even more information about the national debt. Here's one of them that runs all the time, nonstop. As of one day this past week, America's national debt was $28,166,026,000,000 and change. And each citizen's share of that debt, that's you and me, was $85,280. Now, I'm not an economist, and I'm sure not a politician. But my own experience and common sense tells me that when, when people owe more than they earn or own, it often causes trouble down the road. Now, the sermon this morning is not going to be about earthly financial trouble. But you know, the national debt clock, I think, is a good illustration to get us thinking today about a different and a much, much more serious kind of debt. You know, the Bible sometimes refers to sin in financial terms. For example, in Matthew 6, verse 12, Jesus told his disciples to pray, forgive us our debts. So what if God, what if God had a debt clock? Not one that calculated financial debt for a nation like the one in New York City, but one that calculated spiritual debt for each one of us. If sin is a debt, which it is, what if there was a sin counter in heaven that clicked a higher and higher total with each sin, each trespass? How big would our numbers be? You know, the idea, the thought of our spiritual debt is depressing and scary. 
Because our debt of sin has serious, eternal consequences. And we can see that in Romans 6.23, where sin is again referred to in financial terms. Here it is. For the wages of sin is death. Isaiah 59 verse 2 says, But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. And Romans 3.23 reminds us that we all, we all have this debt. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So what's the answer to this problem of the debt of our sin? You know, the realization of our spiritual debt causes some people to believe that they can somehow wipe out that debt, erase that debt. So for them, life becomes an unending quest to do enough meritorious works and good deeds to wipe out that debt and earn their salvation. But you know, sadly, that approach to salvation always leaves people in despair asking themselves the question, have I done enough? Have I done enough? And if they're honest, most people would have to say, not even close. Other people, when faced with the idea of the debt of our sin, may just give up in defeat and say, well, it's no use. I can never be good enough. I can never measure up. God will never be pleased with me. I've heard of people who were reluctant to become a Christian and obey the gospel for that reason. I can never be good enough. So what's the solution to this problem of the debt of our sin? Are despair and defeat the only options? Well, the answer to that question is no. Because there is another option that clearly and correctly understands who God is and what God wants from us. And that correct understanding is, of course, found in God's Word itself. Jesus declared it simply in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You know, God did not offer the gift of everlasting life to the world because of some great accomplishment on the part of mankind. Instead, as the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Rome in Romans 5, verse 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. No one was more thrilled by the gospel of Christ, and no one better understood what it really meant than the Apostle Paul. 
In 1 Corinthians 1 verse 4, Paul expressed gratitude for the Corinthians and their salvation when he said, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus. In truth, God gives his grace away to anyone who will humbly and obediently accept it. It is a gift from God. It is, as we sometimes say, unearned, unmerited favor. In the text that Mike read in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul simply and clearly explained it this way. Here it is again. He says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You know, Paul understood the idea of salvation by grace so well that he could declare this promise from God in Romans 8, verse 1. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And from that verse, I'm taking the title of this sermon today. God promises there is no condemnation in Christ. In Christ. This sermon today is the sixth, and it's going to be the final sermon in the series that I've been doing on the, the great and precious promises of God. I've enjoyed working on the sermons in this series, and, and I hope that you have found some benefit from them. You know, if, if just one person has found some, some hope and encouragement from the promises of God that we've studied in the last five sermons, then it's been worth our time. When we started this series back in January, I said that we were going to dig pretty deep into these promises, and we have, and we're going to today in this last lesson in the series. So let's go back to Romans 8 verse 1 that we just read. You know, we might wonder how in the world Paul could say what he wrote there in that verse. Did Paul not realize the debt of sin that we owe? He was surely aware of his own history and the kind of man he once was and the debt of his own sin. You remember that Paul first entered the pages of the New Testament as Saul of Tarsus. Saul, a man with a clean conscience, doing things that should have violated anyone's conscience. A man with high religious standards, doing things that would be today classified as terrorist acts. A man who hates Christ, but he wants to please God. 
A man who wants to wipe out anything and anyone Christian. A devout Jew that we might call the Pharisee of all Pharisees. For Christians anywhere in the region around Jerusalem, they did not want to hear Saul of Tarsus knocking at their door. We first meet Saul on the pages of the New Testament in Acts chapter 7. In the account of the stoning of Stephen, in that account we read this. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord, and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses lay down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. In the next chapter, Acts 8, we read this. Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. But all of that began to change in Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus. Saul was headed there with letters from the high priest giving him permission to find and bind any followers of Christ and bring them back to Jerusalem. And that's when and where the resurrected Jesus made a special appearance to Saul. Acts 9, 3 through 5 says, As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now you could say that Jesus' surprise appearance on the Damascus road knocked Saul off his high horse. And Saul was left without physical sight for three days. During that time of blindness, God helped him to see the truth about Jesus and his own life. God gave Saul a vision that a man named Ananias would come and restore his sight. When Ananias did come to Saul, he did restore his sight, and then Saul got up and was baptized. And Saul of Tarsus was transformed into Paul the Apostle. Within just a few days, Paul was preaching about Jesus. Think about that. Imagine that. Within a few years, Paul was off on his first missionary journey. And within a couple of decades... Paul was writing letters of the New Testament that we read and study today. By inspiration, he wrote more New Testament books than any other writer. Now, we aren't told exactly when Paul understood the full meaning of the term grace. Did he fully understand it instantly 
when Jesus appeared to him on that Damascus road? Or did the full understanding come during those three days of blindness with fasting and prayer? Or did the understanding come after his healing and after his baptism? We are told when Paul really, really understood it, but we know that Paul, you could say, did get it. Paul truly got grace. Or better yet, we could say that God's grace got Paul. And it transformed his mind and his life. Paul understood the amazing grace offer that God would make us right with him through Christ. A salvation based on his grace and not by meritorious works. You know, I think we could accurately say that the good news of the gospel is in response to the bad news of the gospel. Paul declared the bad news of the gospel when he wrote in Romans chapter 3, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. And we already mentioned his statement in verse 23 of that same chapter. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, people today may take offense at the statements in those verses. People today might say, no one is righteous. No one seeks God. All have fallen short. And they may declare that that doesn't apply to them. They may conclude that compared to the rest of the world, they really are good people. But therein lies the problem. Because folks, our standard, our standard is not the rest of the world. Our standard is Christ. And how righteous is Christ? Well, he is perfect. He was tempted in every way that we are, yet he did not sin. And so compared to Christ, you could say that the debt clock of sin is ticking for all the rest of us. So what can we do? What can we do? Jesus is holy, and compared to him, we are not. Jesus is perfect, and we are not. You see, the gap that separates us from the holiness of God is insurmountable. So, do we just hope that God might not notice our sin? Do we think that he might just overlook it? But the Bible teaches over and over that God is a just God. And being a God of justice means that sin must be punished. So what's the solution to this problem? Better yet, what is God's solution? As we said, the bad news of the gospel is that all have sinned and fall short in Romans 3.23. And the wages of sin is death in Romans 6.23. 
But the good news of the gospel is found in that same verse from Paul, Romans 6.23, But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Paul elaborates on that truth in Romans 3, 24 and 25. He says, Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness. So we can see that God... God never compromised his standard. You see, God satisfied every demand of his justice while at the same time he gratified the longing of his love. You see, God is too just to overlook our sin. And he's too loving to just give up on us. So God placed our sin on his son. And our sin was punished on the cross. Paul explained it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Peter explained it this way in 1 Peter 2.24, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. When Jesus hung on the cross, bearing our sins, he felt the weight of our sin. He felt the pain of separation from God the Father. And that's why he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when his mission was complete and all that needed to be accomplished was done, Jesus cried out from the cross, It is finished. And at the moment of Jesus' death, an amazing miracle happened that you may have read over many, many times and maybe you never thought too much about it. It's mentioned in three of the gospel accounts. The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The veil of the temple was a large, huge curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. The most holy place was, in a special sense, the earthly dwelling place of God's presence. Only the high priest was allowed to pass beyond that, that curtain, that veil, once a year, to enter into God's presence for all of Israel and make an atoning sacrifice for their sins. And this veil was no small, delicate, flimsy little drape like you might have in your house. It was a wall, maybe about 60 feet tall, made of thick, heavy fabric. And the fact that it was torn from top to bottom shows that the hands behind the deed were divine. You could say that God himself grabbed that curtain and ripped it in two to show that there was to be no more division, 
No more separation of sinful people from the presence of God. You see, God was making a way for us to Him through Jesus. Heaven's work of redemption was finished. Christ had finished His perfect life on this earth, and Christ's death brought new life. The barrier that has separated us from God was removed and was no longer needed. Salvation was no longer to be accessed and accomplished through sacrifices and meritorious works. Salvation was now to be found in Christ and the righteousness of Christ because of God's grace. God's blessings and riches are given to us with Christ and in Christ. And that's why God's promise to us is, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, one of the misunderstandings and false beliefs that many, many people often have today is that the gift of God's grace is unearned, unmerited favor, doesn't require us to do anything. We're saved without any real effort on our part, they would say. Probably all of you have seen the TV spots from this man on the screen. His name is Franklin Graham, son of Billy Graham. As far as I know, he is a, <clears throat> he is a good man morally. Stands for a lot of good values, but he is a false teacher. Teaching a false doctrine of salvation with no effort. In his TV spots, which you've likely seen, he says this, and I quote, I listened to one and wrote it down, just pray this prayer God, I'm a sinner. Forgive me. I believe Jesus Christ is your son and I want to trust him as my savior and I'm willing to follow him as my Lord from this day forward. Pray this prayer and call this number. Now that's an example of what we sometimes call the sinner's prayer. The Billy Graham Evangelistic Association website has an article called How to Become a Christian. And that article says this, when you receive Christ into your heart, you become a child of God and have the privilege of talking to him in prayer at any time about anything. Now, the five words that I've highlighted there on the screen are all that many people in the so-called Christian world today, that's all they believe that a person must do to take possession of God's grace. So to help us correctly understand the relationship between God's gifts, like grace, and man's reception of those gifts, I want, us to th I want us to think right here about, about one particular gift of God in the Bible. And it's one that's mentioned in the Old Testament more times than any other thing that God is ever said to have given. You know, the Old Testament mentions a number of things that God gave the Israelites, like manna, quail, water, rest, 
and a lot of others. But the gift of God mentioned most often in the Old Testament is that of God giving the Israelites the promised land of Canaan. God promised to give this land to Abraham almost 500 years before his, or after, before his descendants finally received it. In Genesis 15, verse 7, God said to Abraham, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. In Exodus 6, God later spoke to Moses, and he said, I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. During their 40 years of wilderness wanderings, God reminded Israel about that gift many times. And it was always spoken of as a gift, never as something that they had earned. But I want you to notice right here some of the things that the Israelites still had to do to take possession of that gift. Now, at the same time, I'm not going to read all the references, but they're going to be on the screen. The Israelites had to prepare provisions. They had to cross the Jordan River. They had to march around the city of Jericho once a day for six days and then seven times on the seventh day. They had to blow trumpets and shout. They destroyed all that was in Jericho and they burned the city. They had to do battle with and defeat the people of Ai. They chased and struck down the people in the southern part of Canaan. They fought their way up to the northern part of Canaan and took possession of it. And finally, they drove out the giant descendants of Anak. You see, only then... Only then were they able to take control of the land given to them by God. That land that flowed with milk and honey was not a prize given to them because of some great achievement on their part. The Israelites did not deserve it. They didn't buy from God with any kind of earned income. They didn't earn the right to be there. God, who owns everything, gave it to them as a gift. It was free. It was unmerited. But the Israelites' acceptance of God's free gift required effort on their part. Now, here's the part, here's the point that I want to make. Everybody get this. When it comes to the spiritual promised land that God, through His grace, has freely offered to anyone who will take it, some people, many people today have a hard time accepting the idea that man must put forth effort to receive it. Many, many people in the religious world today have come to the false conclusion that effort cannot be part of the equation when the Bible speaks about God's gracious gifts. But you see... Something can be a gift from God even though conditions have to be met for that gift to be received. For example, I want you to imagine that you had a rich uncle who wanted to give you a check for $1 million. But he said that to receive that gift of $1 million you had to go to his house, 
pick up the check, take it to the bank, endorse it, and cash it. Now, would any right-minded person say that that gift of $1 million was earned? Well, no, of course not. Effort was required to receive the gift, but the effort was not a meritorious work that earned the gift. A gift is still a gift. Even when the one receiving it must put forth a certain amount of effort to possess it. Now, when it comes to the gift of salvation that God extends to the whole world that we read about in John 3.16, there are requirements that must be met on the part of man for him to receive that gift. In other words, to put it simply, there are things that a person must do to be saved. Now the Jews on the day of Pentecost understood that. And we know they understood it because of their question after Peter's sermon in Acts 2.37. They said, men and brethren, what shall we do? Saul that we already talked about believed that there was something else that he had to do besides having that personal encounter with Christ on the Damascus Road. And we know that because he asked Jesus in Acts 9 verse 6, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the jailer at Philippi in Acts 16 after he saw the righteousness of Paul and Silas and after he was awakened by the earthquake and he saw the prison doors thrown open, verse 30 says that he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? As we already said more than once, Paul in Romans 8 verse 1 gives us the great and precious promise that we're thinking about today. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So what must we do to be in Christ Jesus and receive the gift of salvation? Well, the New Testament teaches that a person gets into Christ when they hear the gospel of Christ preached or taught, when they believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, when they repent of their sins, when they confess the name of Christ, and then when they are immersed in the waters of baptism. A person is not saved before they are baptized as many, many denominational people today believe. Saul was not saved on the Damascus Road. But he was in the same condition three days later after his baptism. 3,000 people about it on the day of Pentecost were not saved when they heard Peter preach but they were in a safe condition later on that same day after their baptism. The Philippian jailer was not saved when the earthquake happened, but he was in a safe condition later on that same night after his baptism along with his family. And then after baptism, after baptism we must live faithfully, and walk in the light. Revelation 2 verse 10 says, Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. I want you to look at that verse because in that one verse, 
In that one verse, we can see the gift. There's the gift right there. And we can see what is required of us to receive that gift. Now, living faithfully will manifest itself and be seen in our works. And James tells us that in James 2.17. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But you see, those works are not works of merit that somehow earn us salvation, which is impossible. As we've seen today, it is a gift. 1 John 1 verse 7 says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanses us from all sin. And you know that cleansing of sin in that verse is a continuous process. As long as we're living faithfully, walking in the light, and in a right relationship with God. Now, it's possible for Christians to lose hold of their own salvation or fall from grace by willful disobedience. In Galatians 5 verse 4, Paul says, You are severed from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. Christians may choose to walk in darkness and therefore give up their salvation. Or Christians can choose to walk in the light as he is in the light and remain in Christ in a saved condition with the blood of Jesus cleansing them of all sin. So what blessings do we have in Christ. Because we are in Christ, God gave us grace in Christ Jesus before time began. Paul says in 2 Timothy 1 verse 9, Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus, before time began. Because we are in Christ, we are loved by God with an inseparable love. In Romans 8, 39, Paul says, Nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And because we are in Christ, Paul says in Ephesians 1 that we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Because we are in Christ, we have become a new creation. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. I hope that all of us will realize and hold on to the great blessings and privileges of being in Christ Jesus. To be in Christ means that we have accepted Jesus' sacrifice on the cross as payment for our own debt of sin. In our song books, there is a song that I don't remember us ever singing here, but I could be wrong. The song's title is, He Paid a Debt. And here are the words to the song. He paid a debt 
he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. And now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace. Christ Jesus paid a debt that I could never pay. He paid that debt at Calvary. He cleansed my soul and set me free. I'm glad that Jesus did all my sins erase. I now can sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace. Christ Jesus paid a debt that I could never pay. One day he's coming back for me to live with him eternally. Won't it be glory to see him on that day? I then will sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace. Christ Jesus paid a debt that I could never pay. Only in Christ is our debt of sin canceled and our relationship with God is restored. So let's hold on to the promise that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, those who obey him and live faithfully for him. If you're not in Christ today, a member of God's family, the church, then you are outside of the grace of God and you have no hope of salvation. The promise of no condemnation in Romans 8 verse 1 is for those who are in Christ Jesus. And as we already said, but to be in Christ requires believing that Jesus is the Christ, repentance of sins, confession of the name of Christ, and then baptism, immersion in water for the forgiveness of sin. If you are in Christ today, but you have not lived faithfully for him, and, and there is public sin in your life that you need to confess in a public way, then he offers you his invitation today. As together we stand and sing.